Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, welcome to the third interview of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Today, we're really excited to welcome Stephanie Bonvisuto. Uh, she is a PhD candidate in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Stony Brook University. Um, so right away, Stephanie, uh, where are you uh, coming from right now? Uh, um, oh, God, I want to say something <laughs> really smarmy, like, it's my bedroom, of course, it's my office in 2020. Um, but no, it's it's Brooklyn, it's Flatbush. Okay. Well, you at least have a, a nice view, place. if you can't leave. Um, it does have, it has a, a beautiful view of the neighborhood. I sometimes go out on my fire escape, especially at sunrise and sunset. Like, I know that's cliche, but to see um, the sun going down on Brooklyn is quiet poetry. And I need all the quiet poetry I can get these days. Yeah. So, and Brooklyn is very accommodating like that. Yeah. Well, and I know that you enjoy doing a lot of landscape pictures. Maybe not professional, but I think they're very well done. Oh, well, thank you. That's really sweet of you to say. Um, yeah, I live within a 10 minute walk of Prospect Park and I take advantage of that multiple times during the week. It is a meditation for me and uh, the landscape is never the same. It changes. And that for me is inspiring. Uh, I, I couldn't imagine my life if I had to stare at a blank wall all the time. So, uh, landscapes and horizons that change such as a beach or the sea or just anywhere in new york new york city right in any of its boroughs it's moving it's kinetic and i can't help but be inspired by it and you now are uh, gonna be hired as the official brooklyn uh marketing research I so, am available. I you am are available. available. I'm going to put that out there for anyone Please. listening. So while, while we're talking about the beauty of the, the landscape in, in New York City, mm -hmm. one of the things that so impressed me a few years ago was reading some of the comments that people made when, uh, when Central Park was being founded. We take for granted that we have these things in our lives, right? These amazing public spaces and stuff like that. But somebody had to come up with that idea and somebody had to pitch it to a council of, I don't know, city fathers or whatever they were called back then. Um, and there was serious pushback against Central Park. Now you take it for granted. But if you go back there, you, you have to fight for the things that people a few generations later will take for granted. Yeah, but let's also complicate this a bit and remember that I, I that Central Park was actually a, a land that was a, a community of people of color at the time, oh, God, right? Yes. And for Central Park 
to be built and to be as recognizable as it is today, they had to be displaced. They had Correct. to be violently displaced. Correct. And that's often a history that doesn't get brought up. So you're, you're 100% it's, right. it's right, it's incumbent upon us to keep that memory alive and to remain accountable to it. Yeah, and tell their histories. Almost every time an, a, an, a great urban planner gets a, gets a great idea, you black and brown people get a little tickle at the back of their necks. Right, and often um, that great planner is not a black or brown person. Mm -hmm. Coincidence? Correct. I don't Correct. think so. Correct. But, and I think the way that place functions in your everyday life, like even when I hear you now talking, Stephanie, about the sites that you see in Brooklyn and mm -hmm. uh, the kind of inspiration you get from location, does that in any way connect to what you're researching right now? It actually, yeah, thank you. Um, it actually does. So I am researching the relation, the mutual constituting relationship between social space in the public sphere and identity formations. Specifically, I'm looking at all gender spaces and how access to those help inform and construct and maintain uh, non-heterosexual and or non-cisgender identities such as trans identities, intersex identities, um, non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender queer and queer identities, right? And these are, these are populations that have found great, I mean, really violent pushback in just trying to access, I'm gonna say ordinary everyday spaces that so many of us take for granted and usually that's, a, you know, we, we now know notoriously, infamously, that that has come to mean like public restrooms, public bathrooms. And there are numerous, and I do mean numerous, um, instances where a trans woman will be physically assaulted, yanked out of a stall, dragged out. I mean, this is on video. Just, I believe it was last year out on the West Coast, a trans woman was like assaulted, ended up in a hospital with a broken jaw and a shattered face because she had the audacity to be in a restroom, in a women's room when a cisgender woman was using it. And her boyfriend just decided that that was enough to like physically assault this poor trans woman. So yeah, the idea of space and its availability and accessibility uh, really matters in navigating and negotiating everything outside of our homes. The second that we step outside of our homes, we are within shared spaces, and that's a negotiation, right? That's a navigation, and it's not just it's not just for trans people. Everybody negotiates public space, but that becomes precarious and it becomes dangerous if you are seen as other, if you are seen as threatening to dominant identities. So the connection I'm hearing you making mm -hmm. is that you're a, lot, a lot of how you function day to day and thus how you constitute your identity is 
predicated on your being able to visit this public space in Prospect Park? Sure, I'm actually gonna stop you there and say, we all do this, yeah. right? We yeah. all do this. The fact that many of us don't encounter a violent pushback speaks to a particular type of privilege. Right. We are Correct. we are given a passing privilege where we are not stopped at the door. We are not yanked out of a restroom. We are not questioned about our presence within a particular store. Uh, that That's a privilege. Correct. And um, but yeah, we all make our negotiations. Absolutely. Well, so let me let me put it another way. Since since you're since you're describing your day to day existence, the way that you I guess stay sane and regulated is by having space to breathe. I mean, that's that's what we all do in all of our lives, right? Um, we all like we all do this through routines. We all do this by going to a particular park or or by having a particular breakfast every day. Um, I'm pretty sure I've fried two eggs on toast every day, with a few exceptions since the pandemic started. It's just it's just how I start my mornings or in a couple of unfortunate instances, early afternoons. Um, right, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, that you make your breakfast though in a private sphere in your yeah, home. exactly, exactly. Right, where there is an expectation of both privacy and safety. Yeah. Now that becomes different if you were to say, well, you know, every day for my routine, I go down to the local IHOP and I get their awesome pancakes. I can afford their pancakes. I go in and I don't create a problem in this business. Yet, you know, there are people who can go into such a space and find that they are harassed. They are asked to leave um, for no other reason than who they are, their gender expression, their their the expression of their sexuality. Um, this all becomes uh, seen as suspect. Yes. yes. Right and destabilizing, and that's really important because gender and sexual identities are relational, right? So we not only identify our gender and sexuality through ourselves as identifying who we are, but we also do it relationally, right? We look at other people and say, oh, you know what? I'm not you, I'm not you. And that helps inform our own self-knowledge. Right, so this now becomes a way, gender and sexuality become a way to stabilize who we are, right? So if, I'm, if I am born, right, a cisgender, woman, a cisgender woman, and I go through life believing that what makes me a cisgender woman is, you know what, I have a vulva, I have, um, I have reproductive organs in my body that work. And this may sound offensive to some people, but there are those who believe that this is the criteria for the profile of a woman. Yes. And so, right, so if you go through all of life doing that and you're like, hey, there are these restrooms, there are these bathrooms, and by the way, they're gender segregated, men's room and women's room. My ability to go into the woman's room and not be challenged about that, right? And find that there are things inside of that space, right? Let's call them instruments. There are instruments within that women's room that conform to my body or my body has been, you know, conforms to them. So that informs me about who I am and who I'm not, mm. right? Mm. I don't have a penis, I have a vulva. Therefore, I'm not seeing any urinals around. 
Therefore, the space confirms I'm a woman, my ability to go in and, oh, look, there's a, there's a little tin box in the corner. It's a receptacle for a menstruation pad. That makes sense to me. I undergo menstruation once a month. And I'm told that that's about being a woman. Oh, okay. So the space reaffirms who we are and our gender. Now, if somebody comes in and say, I've identified them as being trans, I don't know how, right? Um, they may look different than the way I'm told that a woman should look like, or they have a really deep voice that I have been told and I have been taught and I've been socialized is a male voice. But wait a minute, they're allowed to come into the woman's space? Now all of a sudden, there's a destabilization of identity. And for some people, that is very triggering, that's very upsetting, and we find that they act out over that. Yeah. But it's really interesting that for these people, one thing we hear them say is, in the case of a cisgender woman, well, if that trans woman is allowed into the woman's room, then who am I? Right? So their own identity as a woman becomes questionable now. Right? It shifts. And without their permission. Correct. So, yeah. So we can see where space really does play an important role in defining who we are and who we are not in the social sphere. Yeah, I'm just, I think this is just so fascinating, Stephanie. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking in the back of my mind, all the language that we've been using so far. I'm yeah. wondering if listeners, like, I think I'm so used to identifying myself as cisgender and gay, mm -hmm. white, Right, like we start to do our um, identities and how they might intersect with each other. I'm curious, like even um, going from an academic space to, you know, maybe more of a public community space, even though I think mm -hmm. the boundaries aren't always clear, but do you find that that terminology, does it help when um, someone starts to identify themselves um as cisgender and um they start to understand how the privilege functions i mean i think that's a loaded question but it is a loaded question and i think as academics we're kind of to blame for that mm. um why because we look we are trained in a very specialized language and there's a reason for that right so we have the ability to communicate about specialized subjects that's not something that's unique to academics on a campus every professional whether it's a secretary a car mechanic whether you're a professional football player everyone has their own specialized language right this type of professional vernacular um whether it's fortunate or unfortunate, there is a, a type of elitism that's gotten tagged with academic language, right? Well, so now we get some class um, prejudice and privilege that comes along with this. So to bring that out of the seminar room and to bring it off campus, I think it's incumbent upon us to one, to know that, right? To know that that bias has been there, has been there before we ever stepped onto a campus and probably will be there afterwards so we should be cognizant of it and also to be willing to explain right um right so i mean i i 
post on Facebook. I have friends who are not academics. And so sometimes they'll say, well, wait a minute, what does that mean? Or why are you using that particular term in that way? What do you mean yeah. by relationality between identities? Or, you know, what, what do you mean binary? There's just men and women, I don't understand. That's incumbent upon me, I feel, that I need to explain, that I need to say, okay, hang on a second, this is what I mean. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you. I I think I think where the where the gray areas or the the issues come in um, is in the fact that you're studying everyday things in a specialized language. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the words that you use, I'm use, using you as an example. A lot of the words mm -hmm. that we all use um, for everyday things, I would say everybody else seems to have a word. And you alluded to that when you said, what do you mean a cis woman? Don't you just mean a woman? No, <laughs> because it's a, much, it's, it's a much more specific term for something that, every, that people run into on a day-to-day -day basis. If people ran into the parts of a carburetor on a day-to-day -day basis, they would use those words. But the disconnect, I don't know what the parts of the carburetor are. I'm sorry, I grew up on Long Island, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know it either, so don't but, ask um, but if But if people, if people ran into those objects on a day-to-day, -day, on the day-to-day -day basis, they would learn those words. And it's, it's not a matter of intelligence, it's a matter of use. And so here the disconnect is that people do run into the things you're talking about on a day-to-day -day basis. We're talking about on a day-to-day -day so basis, but they use I, different words for them. So may I stop you there? Please. We, when it comes to sexuality and gender, we, we live ourselves, we live our lives, our experience through those words, but we don't necessarily engage with them in a conscious way. Yes. Right. In fact, um, I've been noting that for so many people who who just are not engaged in these conversations, and that's fine. But the idea that gender should be questioned at all, or this idea that sex and gender are even different, or the idea of, well, wait a minute, if that person has a penis, why are they allowed into a woman's room? Mm -hmm. Right now, this is taken for granted. Why? Because it is a type of invisibility that privilege allows, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing about uh, being trans or being anything other than cisgender means that, like it or not, we become aware of the construction of gender. We, we even realize that there is a thing called gender, right? Um, and that's, and that's important. That's critical, in fact. And again, we have to be cognizant that our awareness and our knowledge and our language about this is unique, it is new, it is nascent, and it is not necessarily shared by everyone. Here's the other thing, too. Not everybody wants to know about this. For so many people, it could just be like, I go to work nine to five. I come home, I want to sit on a couch with like my hands down my pants and just like watch Netflix <laughs> with takeout. What's the deal? And you know what? I want to respect that. I want to respect that to the point where that does not cause harm to anybody else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but again, I think that when we come out as anything other than cisgender 
or heterosexual, we are aware that there are these structures called gender and sexuality. Yeah. Well, and I really like, Stephanie, you use this term that I'm curious if you can speak more to it about negotiations in spaces. And um, yeah. so what do you mean by, you know, we negotiate um, when we go sure. in space? Right. So there are two things. We negotiate with the physical space itself. Right. So on our campus, uh, Stony Brook University, there is an two all gender bathrooms in one of the largest buildings, right? That's the student activity center. And on the ground floor, there are these two, again, all gender bathrooms where anybody can enter. One of them just has stalls, a row of stalls with a, you know, two sinks. And one of them has a row of stalls and urinals, hmm. right? And so the idea is, well, you know, if I don't have a penis, What's the sense of a urinal? A urinal doesn't quite make sense, right? So there's a negotiation with the instruments that we use, right? Um, so there's that, but there's also a negotiation with others, with people. We share a space and we do so um, with a contract, with this unspoken contract that we are going to occupy a room, a space, a building, an area, and act in a way that is functional for all of us. Now, that sounds great on paper. That sounds like a great thought experiment. Um, for some, it can even sound liberating. But when it plays out in real life, that, that requires a negotiation especially for instance during a, a pandemic hmm. and we can see where that negotiation works and we can see where it breaks down right so right now it's what september 22nd first day of fall yay yeah. in 2020 day fall. Okay. yeah but what we're in like seven months of a pandemic now and we're learning what it means to negotiate public spaces hmm. so after this for instance i'm going to go for my prospect park walk Right. And I'll know that if there's a group of people, I'm going to give them a wide berth. Hmm. Right. They may be wearing masks. They, they, they may be wearing masks. They may not be. I'm still going to give them a wide berth because that's a negotiation that we are all making now. Right. Um, people walking their dogs. I have, you know, this being a borough of New York City, people are always carrying around the plastic bags right, and the plastic gloves and they are ready to pick up after themselves. Uh, that's a part of the negotiation that we are making not only with the landscape, with the physical space, but with each other, right? There are community standards. In theory, that means those standards have been agreed upon by the community. Not always true. In theory, it works, it gets us by. And it's, I don't know about any of you, but it's also for me, illuminating and a little bit frightening to see where the negotiations have been breaking down since the start of the pandemic. Um, people, usually male-bodied people, who are relieving themselves against the building, mm. right, in whatever alcove they can find. I don't know why. There could be many reasons. I suspect it's because of a lack of resources because of the pandemic. Um, but that's been happening. And that is kind of a breakdown of the negotiations. Where I live, people are patient with that. 
right? But it is something that's occurring. And I think, so it's again, interesting to see how we negotiate with each other, with a community that will also all depend on zip codes, right? And often the median income of wherever that zip code is. Yeah. And I, I just want to share a work anecdote. I mean, I try to connect this to a question, but uh, uh, outside of the university space, I have a part-time job as a gym attendant. I'm not going to say the gym, mm -hmm. but it's a big franchise. Um, and we actually had a discussion with our manager a year ago, probably, about um, letting anyone who identifies however they view their gender identity, they mm -hmm. have that access to use either the men or women's restroom. And mm -hmm. if members come up to us and feel aggrieved, um, the members are told, well, we can't ask that person to leave that restroom because it's how they see their gender identity. Mm -hmm. So I actually thought that was a very um, interesting way to talk about these spaces, especially mm -hmm. at a gym where it's already a public private. Uh, right, it's, it's quasi public. What does that mean? It's also bodies that are less protected than perhaps they would be in other spaces, right? When you're done with whatever, with whatever activity you're doing, what do you do? You go into the changing, so you're either going to change your clothes, maybe you're going to take a shower, so you're in various stages of undress, right? Um, and this is something that we also hear about a lot with, with public restrooms, mm -hmm. right? You know, we're, we're in a restroom where our bodies are in a very prone position, either our back is to the door or we're sitting down, we're in a various states of undress, and so vulnerability becomes an issue. Yeah. And I but, think, yeah, please. Sorry, I was just going to say, what is interesting is, I think helpful is the gym. I mean, of course, these, the negotiations, the contracts don't all, always pan out the way you think they will. Like there can be uh, conflicts uh, mm -hmm. with members, but there is also a private restroom that anyone could use. Um, and I think when you're talking about the university, it's interesting because... Uh, Can I stop you right no, there? Stop. No, stop me. Go yeah, ahead. so when you say a private restroom, what do you mean by that? So it's a one-stall mm -hmm. locked restroom. Right. Very problematic. Very yeah. problematic. So trans men and women, when this started to become, when they started to come out in the workplace mm. and the question of restroom access became an issue. One of the alternatives and not a very good one was the idea of, well, because of something may happen or because of the uncomfortability of cisgender people, we have a private restroom for you, which was often a single stall, often down a corridor and around the corner, out of sight of so many other people, yeah. right? And that type of, it became a segregating behavior. It became a segregating practice. Um, Obama's 2015 OSHA 
um, suggestions actually address this. But is also not a very good solution because it isolates mm -hmm. the trans person, right? And in doing so, it cuts them off from a type of sociality, a type of needed social interaction with other people. And it cuts other people off from sharing space with trans people, right? So first of all, then it, it kind of permits this idea that trans people should be segregated mm. and that space gendered segregated spaces, men's rooms and women's rooms should not be accessed by trans people, well, right? Okay. So there's a lot going on there. So I kind of always push back a little bit when people say, well, you know, there are trans bathrooms and what they mean is a single stall. And so can you speak to the inverse, which is um, mm -hmm. the idea that a trans person would be, would use the bathroom associate that they associate with their gender mm -hmm. and a person who was discomfited by the idea of that would be allowed to self-segregate in the single stall bathroom. Wait a minute. So uh, I'm just going to repeat this to me to clarify. Please. The inverse would be, hey, we're now going to allow trans women into the women's room and therefore a cisgender woman may be so upset and so put off that she finds that she needs to go into a single stall restroom. That's what I was yeah, that's what I okay. was Okay, so that's a choice. And it's a choice that's not really based on fact. I mean... No, of course not. I'm not right. I mean, the, defending the, it. I'm, no, no, no. I, yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't, not accusing you of defending it. But I mean, that's their choice. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a choice in the beginning for trans women to say, oh, I can either go into the women's room or into this other space. They were directed into the single stall bathroom and told that that was an acceptable alternative. Right. Yeah, and I think that's like... Um, the and gym, also, let me. Uh, also, let me. Well, I was just going to say the gym no, policies, like the gym I'm speaking about, they don't tell transgender employees to use the single stall. They say there's these choices, mm -hmm. and we affirm whatever decision you make as an employee or a member. But like mm -hmm. I, you know, I hear what you're saying, Stephanie, which is in some states that was the only option is you're going to use a single you're going to use this one right stall and we're going to segregate you from right. the community and i also want to bring up that it's not only segregating them from a particular space it's segregating them from a culture mm. right now we may we may not think that there is a culture in restrooms because the interactions are so fleeting we may not think that there's a culture in a changing in a dressing room or in a, a gym shower or something, but I would push back against that and I would say, of course there is. Yeah, right? we've of been taught to is. think that there's a, especially in women's restrooms, we've been taught to think that there's a culture since, I, I, remember, I remember noticing this phenomenon around the age of 11, that, that girls would disappear into the bathroom together. And so the idea, the idea, the idea that it's just a place you go into for a minute at a time and so you don't need to worry your your head about about who gets to go in and who doesn't is belied by the fact that people go in for other reasons 
Right, exactly. And I just want, I'm smiling here because of your choice of the word disappear. Disappear. Right? They, they don't go into a bathroom, they disappear, <laughs> they disappear. into the, the bathroom. So, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's, that's incredibly important, right? So what is being said? What's not being said? What is a culture that's going on? I can think of so many movies and, and television programs where, you know, the lead actress goes into a, goes into a restroom and is now sharing a secret right or there yes. is talk amongst other women that the women will automatically yes. know right and and there's signage going on there's perhaps graffiti on the walls in the stalls that is particular to that culture to that space that yes. other women will automatically understand that men won't and the same thing is true with in a men's room so there's a culture going there's certainly a culture going on in a gym's dressing room yeah especially the locker right? room narrative right the locker room narrative oh, has all these exactly um, loaded um cultural assumptions but it is interesting when you hit like a movie where it's disrupted these um the bathroom space so like one that stands out in my mind is mean girls when damien uh the character when he's brought in by Caddy and Janice. Um, mm -hmm. You don't know, I'm a huge Mean Girls fan. But, um, and he actually makes a joke out of um, being caught out as being a man in the woman's room. And I think mm -hmm. he, calls, he calls one of his um, classmates a Danny DeVito lookalike. Or, I don't, it's, it's this one scene. So I, I think it's interesting though, because they make that into a, a comedic, moment yeah. where the secret the secret space is actually also disrupting um a gendered space right so when we think about and you know there is an idea it's a prevalent idea and we can even argue that it has legitimacy the idea that a women's room is a sanctuary it is a refuge right and the yeah. culture is built around that so then the idea is who is it a sanctuary against right it keeps men out men right out at the door at the threshold okay if you're not letting trans women in the message is clear you are not a woman you are a man hmm. right so again yeah. access to space reaffirms the our identities as much as we reaffirm what space is and it's yeah. definitely not a sanctuary for carrie in the Stephen King novel. Oh God. No, I mean, really, <laughs> really good point. But look at the culture that evolves around that, right? Yeah. What do the girls do? They're not just teasing, they're throwing pads at her. If I'm remembering the scene correct. correct. That is correct. Right? That might not make any sense at all to a man, but I bet it makes all the sense to anybody who identifies as a woman, as a girl. Yeah, and how traumatizing yeah. that is for her. Yeah, and I have to say, um, going going back to um, going to, going back to eleven year old Adam once more, that book was really formative for me. Like I th I I think that I think that I mean I don't I don't want to out myself and say that I learned that I learned my first lessons in gender and sexuality education from a Stephen King novel, but I think that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like. And okay. and it's it's precisely that idea that that like, I mean, granted, it was written by a person named Stephen, but I was 
getting a peek, I felt like I was getting a peek inside of the secret lives of women and girls and stuff like that. Not in a in an erotic way, although there's certainly that in both the novel and the TV and the movie, but um, but in a in a psychological way. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So that reminds me, there is a Dean Koontz novel. Mm. Oh, I um, love. Oh, he was that, that middle school guy that deals with a group of women who have their own cultural center. And there's some like witchcraft, I think, involved with nice. it. I am not remembering this at all. <laughs> but but it I like do remember, novel. I do remember his afterward where he asks him, he answers the question, what made you think about writing this hmm. book? And he said, because I used to drive by this women's center and I always wondered, what do they do in there? Yes. And from that, he thought of this plot. And I thought to myself, or they could be doing something incredibly uh, um, uh, non-threatening. Yes. Or they could be doing something that's just reaffirming their gender, right? Maybe they're talking about showing each other pictures of their kids, their grandkids, mm. swapping. Right, but or to, maybe, your point, to your point, there is yeah. a kind of magic to that no matter what it is. And so his idea that this becomes a center of witchcraft uh, witchcraft is just culture that we don't understand. So it it dovetails very nicely, I think, with with Can your I add idea. The word gendered. It's gendered culture that we don't understand. Perfect, perfect. And I actually want to I want to add something from my own studies. Um, one of the books that I made a point of teaching when I was um, when I was holding class at Stony Brook was called The Convent of Pleasure by Margaret Cavendish. It's a play from the 1650s, 1660s. And what it's about a woman who's called Lady Happy, right? You know how they, they used to name characters. Um, and she was very wealthy and she was single. Her father had just died and left her his fortune. And she decided that the worst thing she could possibly do was to get married because that would uh, consign her, her fortune and her her sense of personal identity and everything to her husband. And so what she does is she develops basically a secular convent for women to escape their husbands and, um, and for women to escape the prospect of husbands. And there's a bunch of men who cross-dress to sneak in. Um, they dress it, they dress, well, exactly. They dress as the baker, the, um, the, the beer brewer, and I think the butcher. Uh, because of course, a place like this would have would have female uh, kitchen staff, right? Mm -hmm. So they dress as the kitchen staff to try to sneak in. It's 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 that part that part unfortunately rings a little bit sinister, given the current debates, and the current uh, boogeyman about about um, trans people invading the wrong restroom, so to speak. But it's a it's a really it's a really uh, interesting uh, play about what it would be like if in the 16, the mid 1600s, if women were allowed to design their own spaces. Yeah. And if well, women had the sort of legal sanctuary and the, uh, the mm. psychological sanctuary in their, their daily lives that men have. Right, so this has been a long-standing um, discussion that's been going on, but the discussion itself reproduces binary norms, right? We don't really get out of this. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, Stephanie. Yeah. Especially when Adam was talking about, you know, the formative experience of reading Carrie, I know for myself too that novel was I read it in middle school, 
because of bullying I had gone through. So like for me, it was a working through of my own trauma. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's a trauma novel, but um, I was curious, is there a book or it might not even be a book or some kind of media piece that growing up you saw a trans narrative or maybe it's not a trans narrative, maybe it's, I don't always, I don't want to say you saw yourself, but you know, maybe what sparked your interest in your current studies? Sure. So I'm going to take a moment to identify myself as a, as problematic for some as this may be, I'm going to identify myself as a queer woman of transsexual experience. So having said that, um, yeah, there were cultural moments that spoke to me about not so much about being transsexual. So I'm going to so carbon date myself here in saying that I am on the I am on the cusp of both Gen X and boomers. Ugh. Having said that, having said that though, right? So when transsexuality was talked about, there was Renee Richards. Renee Richards was like the only cultural touchstone if transsexuality came up. And at least in the environment that I grew up in, which was a very conservative, very um, parochial, transsexuality was just seen as such a stigmatizing, uh, demonized identity that it was barely even talked about. It was hypersexualized. It was seen as incredibly deviant. So that's how I got socialized to that. So actually, Renee Richards was not somebody that I looked to, I looked about. I will say that I've always gravitated to um, girls and women in a way that my uh, male friends did not. And in fact, it became a running joke with many of my partners later on that I had a quote unquote girl thing. Mm. And I, no matter what I did, I couldn't exercise it. And then it just came to the point where I was like, I'm not going to exercise it. Let's see what this is about. But so growing up, was I a huge fan of Susie Quattro? Was I a huge fan of Joan Jed and the Blackhearts? Absolutely. Could not tell you why per se. Right, a lot of the language that we take for granted now about um, transgender identity formations and experiences was not available to me. This was well before even the internet, right? So again, also the language was highly pathologized, and it, and again, it was seen as a type of deviance. The idea of sex and gender being separate threads of identity was was not something that anyone was considering at the time. Um, yeah, so that, yeah. that's the environment that I was working with. So were there times when I could look at Wonder Woman, which was, I believe, on uh, ABC at the time? Yeah, I love that. I used to, on a Saturday morning, I would sneak down into the basement and twirl around with a makeshift cape thinking I was Wonder Woman. Oh my God, so much fun. Um, but it all, I was very aware that I was the only person out of you know all the supposed guys that I knew who was doing that. 
And I was well aware that that marked me as different. And in the environment I was growing up in, um, that was seen as a, as a type of sexual deviance. Yeah. Now that's really hard for a 10 year old, a 12 year old, yeah. to automatically be marked for that. So. Well, and it's, oh, to all the millennials out there listening, um, <laughs> I, you know, being a millennial, like now growing up, not growing up, but in the past few years, I, I could look to, like those who are transgender can look to Janet Mock and Laverne Cox. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many now prominent celebrities. Mm-hmm. Um, but like what you're saying, Stephanie, is you didn't have that type of role model uh, no. to look towards. Right, exactly. Do you I think- will, no. yeah. Do you think that when you have intergenerational talks with the transgender community or mm-hmm. even like a queer community broadly, do you think that there's a lot of um, different relations now to um, one's identity because of such prominent uh, celebrities? Do I think that there's many more options and resources yeah no exactly exactly yeah no absolutely absolutely and um i think that's great i think that's healthy and that is something worth fighting for to keeping that that is like that's basic i think those resources are basic for any community to grow up with and it needs to be built upon right so we need to fight that it doesn't backslide into making the transgender experience uh, a stigmatized identity Mm -hmm. we really need to fight for that yeah Yeah. because that was just awful yeah (laughs) and i I think it's really moving that you that uh when when you talk about um when andrew asked you about about this sort of um moment in your development, you immediately went to a place where you knew that there was something different about you compared to um, mm-hmm. compared to the people that you related to on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. But you didn't have the resources and particularly the space to express those exactly parts of your personality. And so and so it seems to me very very much a straight line, however many obstacles you had to smash through or go around, that you would go from there to studying the the spaces that people that people use to define their identities. Yeah, I, I wish it was linear. I no, wish it was no, 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 linear. No, it's not it's it's not that the light the the life path is linear, but the logical path certainly is. Um yeah, but I think that that's a facade. I think that that's, you know, logic. There was, I mean, I, I, again, I mean, I think we were all aware that life doesn't follow a linear trajectory. Yes. Having said that, oh, okay, I am going to totally tap into some pop culture here. Yeah. It was very Jeremy Berrimi. Okay. That's for all you good, good place fans. My trajectory was all over the place. And in fact, I went through many decades of straight up denial. 
Straight up denial. I had a mustache and beard that I was told was akin to either Jesus Christ or Moses, depends on what religious person you were asking. I was a head-banging, heavy metal, leather-wearing, spike-wearing freak in the 1980s. Um, I couldn't embrace the masculine tropes hard enough. And then when that still didn't work, I couldn't take enough drugs to shut it off. I couldn't drink enough to shut it off. And it was still there. So, um, but yeah, there was a long time of a lot of denial and still it kept coming up. And, you know, it, it, it's disorienting. The idea of a gender dysphoria uh, for me, now, speaking for myself, my own experience was real. That was authentic. That was a, a very real experience. So when all, you know, I could be hanging out with my guy friends and somebody breaks out like a Playboy magazine or a Hustler magazine. And the discussion was kind of foreign to me because everybody is like, oh, look at that. Check that out. Let me objectify whatever body part. And I'm like, oh, but I want that. That's me. And I didn't understand what that meant at the time. Like, how could I be thinking that this uh, uh, this pinup is me? Why am I even thinking in those terms? I didn't even have the language for it. So I became even more like isolated and that became even more repressed. Mm. But so the idea of like any sort of logic to it, if there's a logic, it is the, the logic of repression. Right. How do we move forward through such a restrictive space? Yeah. And well, I, and what more restrictive space than academia? <laughs> I mean, I don't, that might sound really. Uh, no, but, the, but okay. So that is true. And I'm actually going to bring it back around to the idea of space and how space not only identifies who we are, but it produces a type of knowledge. Yeah. So without mentioning names, I, a couple of years ago, took a sociology of sexuality class. And the syllabus was, as much as you can imagine, filled with recent books and articles about sexuality. But the sexuality that was being discussed was very white. It was very, very cisgendered and almost all heteronormative, right? Um, even some homonormativity but it was all there. Now this is happening in a seminar room mm -hmm. with a long-standing gendered sociologist mm -hmm. and his syllabus yeah. and these articles that have all been quote unquote peer reviewed with these books that were supposed bestsellers at the time. So this, all these components give an air of authenticity and a drive to what we were doing. And then we're not only consuming knowledge in that, uh, room, we were creating it and we were reaffirming and reproducing it. Oh. So having said that, when, according to the syllabus, we come to the section about transgender people, I'm like, okay, that's interesting, but it didn't deal at all with the sexuality of transgender people. It was the way that the syllabus was set up and the readings that were brought in actually created a debate about whether or not trans people were even valid or real. And I'm like, really, are we even talking about this? In, in, in a college setting, worse, there was uh, when we got to the sexuality of women of color, specifically black women, the article that we read 
dealt with sex workers. It was the only article that we read about sex workers, in fact. So we can see how these components structure a type of identity. And again, there's an air of legitimacy about it. Yeah. Right. So, so you, I really think that that is something that we need to think about when we all go back on to, on campus. Yeah. And those listening right now, you're not seeing the facial expressions of Adam and I, and they're very shocked. And, <laughs> and I know who this person is, and I'm not going to say his name, but oh, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so just to be clear, this is a class you took at Stony Brook. It is. Yeah. Yeah. With a I'm prominent go vomit. theorist. With what? I said a so-called prominent gender theorist. A long-standing, world-renowned gender sociologist. Yes. Who I am going to say, we gave this learned professor, the, myself and other members of that class, gave the gave him pushback. Mm -hmm. gave him Good. critique. And I think that this person was incredibly uncomfortable about that. And okay, I don't necessarily live my life like get up and want to give everyone a teachable moment, but that one I was committed to, right? I'm like, okay, you're going to bring the, you're going to put this on the syllabus and see it as legit. No, we're going to have, we're going to have a discussion here. Yeah. And I might add too, and I might add too that the readings that we talked about, and again, I'm not going to mention the titles of the, of the books that we were reading. These were all recent books by well-known sociologists um, that dealt with a, a normative type of sexuality that barely mentioned, barely mentioned anyone who was trans, non-binary, or gender non-conforming. And I would argue what that does is that further that re-marginalizes these populations. If we're not, if we're not, if we're talking about sexuality, but we're not seeing a trans person as a, as a sexual subject, that's a re-marginalization. That's horrible. Yes, yes. And yeah, 100%. for those listening, um, that person, that sociologist is no longer at the university. Um, True. Based on... Mm -hmm. Uh, years of harassment. Uh, really? Oh, yes. Um, but I think to Stephanie, to your point, you just used that term teachable moment. And I'm wondering, on your terms, when do you think it's worth teaching mm. someone who is una maybe unaware or uh, ignorantly aware of the harm that they're doing to such a the transgender question. community? Yeah, so you know that's a case by case basis. I don't wake up like, hey, what's on my agenda today? What's oh look, teachable moment, one every hour. I'm there for that. Like that's not <laughs> what I do. That's and in fact, you know, there are times when I don't want to engage in a teachable moment because I think it kind of calls me out in a way that I may not want to be called out. Right? Like, what am I doing in that space? Am I just trying to have a meal at a restaurant or just watch a movie or I'm at a party or something? And do I really have to explain to so-and-so, do I really have to explain to that Karen over there that having a trans woman in a bathroom is not a threat to her, to her life? Like, really? And that, you know, I mean, it's not that I'm not 
well-versed in that argument. It's not that I can't bring up a dozen citations, sure. But maybe I'm just there at the party to help celebrate somebody's birthday or something. Having said that, yes, I will engage in some of those moments if I think that the moment can be productive either between myself and the person or the audience. Because there's always an audience, right? There's always an audience. But if it's somebody who just wants to debate because they believe it's their right to debate another person's existence, yeah, I, I'm not there for that. I am not there for that. I, I guess I'm at the age where, and I've been doing activism for a long time. I pick and choose the battles now. Yeah, and I always remember you've mentioned to me a few times if someone's giving me pushback on social media i always have you in my mind stephanie when you said the devil doesn't need an advocate did i say that okay. yes you that sounds good. That. i'll take that sure no, not, okay. yeah you said you know uh anyone who's trying to say andrew that um, they're giving the they're trying to be a devil's advocate pay them no mind and um yeah you know and I've, yeah this is now your is it your sixth year? In sixth year. year. Yep. And um, do you think now being in your department for six years, do you think that they understand this level of precarity that you might be in? Um, and are they, have they negotiated the types of, you know, the types of spaces that you yourself are negotiating? So I don't, I don't think that they, they can negotiate my negotiations via proxy, um, just because they're they not who I am. Yeah. Having said that, um, I believe that my department is doing what they can. Yeah. Does it sometimes fall short? I'm gonna be honest with you, sometimes it does. I, and that's where, again, I have to ask myself, is this worth engaging or not? Sometimes they have risen to a moment in a way that has moved me, that has surprised me. And I'm really thankful for that. But there are times too where to relay my level of precarity as a middle-aged queer woman of transsexual experience without a supportive family mostly or without an immediate family or without a partner to convey that i've had to share experiences with them that's been difficult that's been a weight to do that's been an emotional labor and unfortunately, I think those moments are actually components of academia right now. We are expected to share these, like this trauma porn, as a colleague has, has termed it. And I think that's accurate. So, right, how many of, how many uh, funding applications have I filled out that doesn't focus on my research, but focuses on how precarious I am and asks for details, right? Like, what are the details that we should be funding you? And I'm like, really? I have to share those details with you? I have to put it in writing and sometimes multiple times? 
And there is no real appreciation of that, I think, in the institution of what that means. We shouldn't have to go into detail about how close we are to losing our apartments, how close we are, how many times do we feel harassed on the streets. And I'm not just talking about um, people in the trans community. I'm also talking about, right, um, trans women of color. Absolutely. Uh, international students, especially in the last four years. No one should have to retell those that trauma over and over and over again to just be a candidate for funding. Figure out a better way. That's unacceptable now. Figure out a better way in 2020. That, that's a mechanism I think that's been a, a holdover for a generation at least. Oh yeah. And I think, you know, it speaks to me of a type of liberal um, policy that is just, it's, it shouldn't be seen as workable anymore. Yeah. And I'm not exactly sure what the solution is. I know that this is not the solution. Yeah. And like you said, you're now putting that student mm -hmm. to retell their narrative. Like, I mean, would I want to retell my, I'll be very honest here, but would I want to retell my sexual assault narrative for funding? I think that's a really, I wouldn't want to do that to myself. And, you know, it also now tries to show me, I feel like I'd be showing myself as the victim. Like, and I've worked so, really hard to free myself from that narrative. Right, so exactly. Right, so problematic. Right, so I will share um, that I've been homeless. I, to, to, to have to retell that story. And, and to add to the irony of it, I'm telling this story to receive funding so I'm not homeless and I don't receive that funding. I'm like, you're like okay, what am I doing here? Yeah. Right? I mean, at what point does this become the darkest of all satire? I know, right? So it's, it's, there's got to be a better method. There's got to be a better way. Um, and I may have, my experiences may have enlightened people in my department. It may have made them uncomfortable, kind of sorry, not sorry about that. Yeah. I do know that there have been people in my department who have stepped up who and i and i am grateful for that i also want to emphasize that that's been my experience yeah well and you know the research that you're doing right now um i mean if, if you want to tell everyone maybe the breakdowns uh yeah your chapters and especially there's one that is quite salacious that I can't wait to uh, read, which is the queer sex parties section. Wow. Um, so you're putting that out there before I have a chance to describe it. I know, so, I know. <laughs> huh, okay. Yeah, so again, I'm looking at those formative relationships between social and socializing spaces and identity formations. 
And I'm specifically looking at, again, how all gender spaces affect and are affected by trans people, intersex community, um, non-binary, gender non-conforming, and queer people. I'm looking at this across three different research sites, right? The public restroom, right? The all gender public restroom, which is basically a new phenomenon now. Um, and hopefully one that will just in increase. I'm also looking at LGBTQ plus community centers and how they respond basically being an all gender center, you know, um, and it's not, it's not always amicable. So kind of studying that. And yes, the queer sex party. And I'll be honest with you, when I first started this research, my knee-jerk reaction was, oh, but wait a minute, it's, that's quote unquote just about sex. How can that possibly be important to this conversation? Mm. And yet I am I have learned, I am continuing to learn, and I am so grateful and thankful for my respondents. Um, for illuminating this and articulating this, that it is incredibly important for a space that will validate and legitimate us as sexual subjects. Mm -hmm. The idea that we have a sexual subjectivity, I think this speaks to how we see ourselves in the world, how we move through the world, how we can consider ourselves as desiring, as desired, and as desirable. Mm. And to think about all of that outside of the context of gender binaries. What are the possibilities? What is the potential? I think one of the problems that exists is that when we talk about non, when we talk about non-cisgender people, we only see those communities in terms of gender. We can't, we have a, culturally, we have a difficulty in imagining these communities outside of that box, outside of that gender frame. And yet, why not? Why aren't we seeing trans people as, as sexually active? And what does that even mean? Right, because I know there are going to be so many people who automatically go to, oh, well, obviously then they're going to be practicing some sort of uh, deviant sexuality. Maybe, maybe not. And by the way, both are fine. You want to know why? Because cisgender people also practice both of those and all of those. Very true. Right, so um, I think that that particular chapter is incredibly important because it speaks to a foundational component of identity that we, that is often not permitted to the trans community, to gender non-conforming and non-binary and intersex communities. Yeah. So, well, and if there's anything you want, um, maybe someone who is listening and they don't, they've maybe never read, um, a gender sexuality study type book. Um, what would you want them to take away from the lens that you're providing? That's a good question. 
Okay, so are you speaking specifically about sexual subjectivity and a sexual identity? Well, that would be a good place to start. Okay. Yeah, let's start there. Yeah. Yeah. So for people who identify as being sexual, that is something that cuts across gender identity and expression. Right? So I want people to think about empathy. I want people to think through and with empathy. Mm. Right? I want to I want people to be able to recognize other people's stated sexuality and to understand them more fully through those lens. Mm. And if that makes them uncomfortable, if that, because, right, we're gonna go back to relationality. Does that make them uncomfortable? Does that kind of destabilize who they are? There's a really good chance of that. Hmm. Sorry, not sorry, <laughs> right? Because I think that as a culture, we are long overdue and we keep avoiding it. That conversation about what does it mean to share space across gender, and sexual identities. Mm -hmm. And again, we have been so determined and invested in not having the conversation that we'll drag people out of spaces. We'll physically assault them. We will question the, the very integrity of their character, right? I mean, all the Goffman here. And we see this not only just playing out in the United States, I would argue it's even worse on the other side of the pond in Great Britain. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, we do not want to have this conversation. We have to have this conversation. And especially, yeah. well, oh, sorry, but especially, no I keep seeing the news of what's happening in Poland and um, yes, how homophobic, uh, transphobic, like there's literally, um, if you get identified as, under the LGBTQ spectrum, mm -hmm. like you are threatened and yeah. you can't even be in certain spaces. And I think, um, you know, how are we learning from what's going on right now? Um, is a question I just keep having in the back of my mind. Like, are we learning? Are we empathizing? Yeah, that's a really good question. And when I see and hear so many so many activists take on this idea that gender and sexuality are quote-unquote boutique issues that do not need to be addressed in the moment because there are so many other existential um, problems going on. I grow very, very concerned because I, for me that's privilege talking and that's also the kind of like this willingness to sacrifice whole populations of people to to maintain a sort of status quo and that is incredibly dangerous that is so yeah. dangerous especially as we see certain legislation being drafted that is anti-trans and even anti-lesbian anti-gay mm -hmm. that comes hand in hand that's all connected and as we see policies being put into place that legislate 
who can go where and yes now we are again going back to spaces again we're going to be going back to restrooms right but we're also talking about certain institutions the the banning of trans people from the military that's a particular space and that's a particularly gendered space right so the idea of keeping trans people out of that is to reaffirm a particular norm and which athletes, especially usually female yes. athletes, that's happening. Yes. I have I have a colleague who um, is working on that, and I think it's in, it's critical information. It is critical work that she is doing right now. Like, why are female athletes expected to be put through the ringer if they're um, due to their hormones or right? If this is all happening right now and. Yeah. I even have a very good friend right now who um, is uh, trying to adopt a child and is part of a queer family mm -hmm. and just opened up on social media that they've been targeted by a, an adoption agency um, that, that I think the agent said, well, I, I don't um, feel comfortable with your kind of family arrangement. And right exactly like and when you i think when someone knows like i know that this is happening but now i actually put a face to oh my friend is going through this discrimination right it, mm -hmm. it, there's a humanizing element but i just hope that people you don't have to wait until you personally know someone to empathize with them right and so i'm going to you know, absolutely agree with all of that. Um, and I find it very concerning when conservative forces seek to pack the courts with judges that won't be making final decisions on whether or not the, about the legitimacy of these, um, of these families, of marriages, and of people's very identity. So again, I really push back against the idea that any of this is uh, superfluous, that it's quote unquote boutique. And no. again, as we close in on an election that will have such ramifications for so many people. Um, but again, it's about things that are so basic, mm -hmm. right? So I want, I want people to think about like, when you go out in public, and you need to go to the bathroom how much thought are you giving that mm. right not yeah. just oh like where's the where's the men's room where's the women's room but how about and will i be allowed in there if i go in there will i find some sort of violent policing going on where i could literally be dragged out of there shamed videoed as all of this physically assaulted and that would all be seen as correct yeah well um, like with my um you know my identity being gay but my pronouns are he him his mm -hmm. i identify as um, a cisgendered man um i feel like when i do put on maybe pride clothing or i have a rainbow flag mask it's interesting because the and as the listeners know i'm in suburban long island um most do give, I guess, supportive glances. I don't know. That's a loaded type of way of reading body language. 
But, um, you know, at the same time, I guess I'm anticipating someone is going to say to me, oh, you're putting this in our face or you're flaunting your identity or like- But why do we never get that? Why do we never get that when it's something that's heterosexual? Yeah. Or like a, a heteronormative frame. Like, do yeah. I want to see um, a heterosexual couple just like, like grinding against each other on the subway? Yeah. Honestly, no, no. And I, you know, the expectation is, is that I won't question when a heterosexual couple has a large family and whether or not that the fact that they're heterosexual makes them good parents or not, right? That type of connection. Mm. Um, that's normative assumptions that actually, right, the research has shown that children will grow up fine in a, in a same-sex family in a, with same-sex parents. The, the evidence is there. Yeah. But so, the I'm left with, even though, and I think this is of the moment, I'm so curious when we listen back to this mom for, months from now, um, mm -hmm. I'm hoping from a, you know, optimistic place that we're in months from now. Um, but I am left with kernels of optimism. And it comes from just Stephanie, how you've described this empathy project this, um, and this is in your work, that there is this takeaway of um, just trying to, what it means to actually be an empathetic ally and listener. Yeah. Yeah, so it is implicit, it is implicitly a component of my work, yes. Um, I think it is important that allies and each other that we extend empathy as much if not more than sympathy right it is it has been my experience but i've also certainly have read the scholarship that there's a thin line between sympathy and pity and that pity i think allows us a dislocated emotional location. Yeah. So, right. I, know I, I don't know what it means to live in the Middle East, but if somebody's mosque is, is destroyed, is bombed, I can feel a lot of pity for that. Right. And also, here's the other thing. I think pity also allows us a, an easy out, a type of dismissal. So, oh my God, you know, that mosque got bombed. Uh, that's really far away, so I just want to send all the hopes and prayers, mm. right? And that fulfills the idea of pity. That also fulfills the idea of sympathy. It satisfies it. But empathy mm. is, is entirely different. Empathy means that I'm actually seeing myself in you, in your, re in your experiences. They're actually the same. So if I look at the same uh, event, right, there's been a terrorist explosion, a mosque has been uh, demolished, people have died. And if I now look at that and go, oh, wait a minute, that's a place of worship. I go to a place of worship. What would that mean if I brought my entire family and somebody bombed my church? That would be awful. And now there's a new type of, of bridge that's being formed between myself and somebody thousands of miles away. Mm. Yeah. 
I mean, that was great. I was I was going to ask you to to be to you know define what the difference was between empathy and sympathy, but you de you definitely did that. That was um, that was really helpful. And I think that there is, I mean, we we've talked about this before that there is there is a connection, right? Empathy is in some ways a muscle. It does get stronger the more you use it, mm -hmm. and so um, so we're 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 going back to this sort of original proposition in some ways that um if you can stomach doing horrible things to say a trans woman then you can you're probably more likely to be able to stomach doing horrible things to just about anybody um cuz it's it's just you 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 go you go along i mean there, I think there's a binary. You either care, you're either able to care about people or you're not. And the more you're able to care about people, the more the more you're able to care about people who you don't ever expect to resemble in any literal way, but you can see yourself resembling in these sorts of, um, in these sorts of empathetic ways, these, these like, metaphoric ways for lack of a better term right yeah so to build on that a little bit let's talk about a restroom right if i can think of if i if i'm a cisgender person and i'm thinking oh you all need that um all gender restroom as a kind of a sanctuary so you don't get beat up okay that's fine that's that's sympathy working right and sympathy yes. tends to have its limits right so for instance i could say well as long as you're in that bathroom and you're not in my bathroom one of the gendered segregated restrooms that's fine right because you have your own space and i feel really bad for you and i'm really glad you have your own space that's yes. sympathy working <laughs> but not my space right? is what you're saying but, right? right but now if i have empathy and i'm like oh wait a minute you need to just go to the bathroom that's an urge I have how many times a day? And I know what that means not to be able to have that space. Maybe then that type of thinking could say, oh, maybe you coming into my space because you just need to do the thing that I need to do. Right. That now draws a different type of frame right. in which to look at each other, right? That, that makes us reconstruct the idea of relationality. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that I find uh, inspiring um, is that you're very much ahead of the curve this year because you've been studying how spaces affect culture. Adam, it's 2020. To be ahead mm -hmm. of the curve, we are all tumbling on the top of a tsunami. <laughs> like, uh, uh, okay. okay so, no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, we're now all we're now all discussing and studying how how spaces affect culture and how we have taken our spaces for granted we cis people have taken our spaces for granted i mean mm. god knows that you have not been taking your spaces for granted you've been making a study of them for a reason um but it's it's fair to say that the rest of us have to the point where something untoward and horrible and not to be born happens like a trans person walks into your bathroom and suddenly you're in a you're in a crisis of philosophy you don't know who you are anymore uh you're you're under attack you need to anyway so so i think i think it i think it's really um i think it's really 
indicative of how how you have a stronger culture, right? Is by having more voices, right? Because a lot of us do commit the sin of taking our privileges for granted. Mm-hmm. But I do think that we all have slightly different privileges and slightly different, not that that's a grand idea. We all have different privileges, right? That's a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been trying to grow my hair as long as yours for years. And it's just, not, it's not going to happen for me. <laughs> so, um, but, but what I, what I mean is that, um, is that as, as the ground shifts underneath, underneath us, different perspectives become either the dominant perspective or if not the dominant, let's say the most important perspective, right? The, the, um, the idea that, that we could come across a scholar who's been working for years on the ways in which culture and space and sanctuary interact at a time when no public space feels like a sanctuary is it really is really fortunate and and wonderful and and if that doesn't serve as a as a bullhorn for your project and 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 force people to pay attention then then what are what are we doing because it's not it's not that i i don't i mean i don't think that what happens is that is that um somebody dictates the terms of how society is going to move forward what happens is a random event and then the person who who does the best job of explaining it is the one people listen to and from what i'm from what i'm hearing now and in in our previous conversations you're doing a, a really good job of explaining how all of this is going to shake out at least in terms of how we work to reclaim our public spaces in this case from a literal disease um Mm. and not from the disease of transphobia Uh, well i think they're they will end up intersecting well of course they're but i also also want to say everything intersects yeah and i want to say that i want to take what you've just been saying for the last couple of minutes and forward it to all my future hiring committees Okay, so I you're, that I you're, just want to you're welcome. That. You're welcome to do that, and I'm glad. Uh, I'm 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 glad to write your recommendation <laughs> if I'm in a position to do so. But having having said all that, um, I, I I really hope that on the other side of this, when we reemerge from our from our caves, mm. right, and we remember <laughs> what it's like to be phenomenologically in this world to have a presence in this world that informs us of who we are. I think it is incumbent upon all of us to think about what you just said, right? That space is a privilege, it's a luxury, and it's also a negotiation. Some of us will have it easier, some of us will not. What do we do when we reemerge into the public sphere? Do we reproduce the norms because it feels comfortable? Or do we lean into something new and work what Halberstam calls, because I love to name drop this work, Gaga feminism? Do we go, do we lean into the change? Do we lead into the the possible and the creative possible? Yeah. I'm really hoping that we do that. Look, right before the pandemic happened, I was taking a lot of optimism from the fact that so many 
architectural firms were rethinking what it meant to design a new public restroom mm. that could accommodate all genders. Now, this is something that's been going on in various parts of the world. So this isn't something new, but it's something new to our culture. And so many firms, architectural firms, architects, uh, construction firms, were willing to take that on now to start to rethink and redesign yeah. with an idea of the future. And I'm really hoping that when we come out of this, that that impetus is still there. Yeah. And I, I, think that, I think that brings us back to one of the first things you said in this interview, right? Where you were, you were sort of playing the character of the, um, the, the pearl-clutching cis woman who sees a, a trans person invade, mm -hmm. so to speak, her bathroom and says, mm -hmm. well, if that person is allowed in here, if, if, if that trans person is allowed in here, then, then what even am I? That's a great question. If you're, if you're mm -hmm. curious and you're open to the answer, that's a great question. Uh, but <laughs> I, want to, I want to kind of respect that the questions that we're asking on campus in a very particular and therefore particularizing space, the seminar room, right? The lecture hall, those questions that we're asking may not be the questions that are being asked by many people off campus. And so, how do we how do we have those conversations again? Yes, right. Yes. How do we communicate these ideas and start that talk? Because it's not just about us. Social space means it's a shared space. How do we now start having that talk? Maybe, for instance, we start saying, "Hey, the idea of woman as a social subject, as a political subject, that's actually been been in flux." for centuries. It's not been yeah. the same. And in fact, if it was the same, that would you would not be able to recognize what a woman is today. So language shifts, language evolves, or sometimes even devolves. Uh, we sometimes call that slippage, right? The idea yes. that definitions will slip and change the meaning of a word. And that is actually yeah. ordinary. That's what language is supposed to do. So yeah. I think that if we can come together and start talking about that, that could start the conversation. Yeah, and and the the converse. Look at all of the. Um, I mean, we're talking right now about about bodily removing people from restrooms in order mm -hmm. to head off uncomfortable questions. Look at all of the people that we've removed from the university canon, from our own personal reading lists, etc., in order to head off those uncomfortable questions. Mm -hmm. I've. I've had some uncomfortable moments in my life, and most of them pale in comparison to reading Octavia Butler. Mm. And that's, that's a good thing. You're, I mean, it's not a bad thing to be uncomfortable when you're reading a science fiction novel. Yeah, I, I would even go so far as to say it's not a bad thing to be uncomfortable. Yes. Exactly, Especially exactly. with other ideas and around other people. And if exactly. we're too comfortable, that probably means somebody else is being harmed. Yeah. Well, yeah. Isn't that where change happens is in the uncomfortable spaces? Mm -hmm. Right. Or in recognition of, like, even how I've evolved on certain issues, maybe they're political issues, mm -hmm. it's usually because I'm challenged. I'm always, if yes. I'm challenged, I have to have a debate. It's a chance for me to evolve my opinion. 
Um, yeah. But I think what you're saying, yeah. Stephanie, and what I'm just so in awe with, with your research, is you've really destabilized um, even how you yourself are positioned in the academy and how you're positioned outside the academy. I really feel like you've just brought these communities together in a really interesting way. Um, and I think I'm trying to articulate- And all I wanted to do was get a PhD. That's all I wanted <laughs> to do. Yeah. But wow. You, but Multitasker. That's <laughs> I think what it is, is you're such an authentic researcher and so much- I am, I am totally good at- so I, my therapist will tell you I have a hard time, and I will tell you I have a hard time accepting compliments. So here's what I will say. Thank you. <laughs> that took a lot for me to say. Thank you. But also I so have to defer to every single one of my respondents and my interviewers, interviewees, mm -hmm. because without them, this work doesn't happen. Yeah, that's without massive. them. And yeah, we talked about so, that before with some of our other interviewees that like the 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 chutzpah it takes to um, to put yourself on the line for an academic that you may not even know personally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was just transcribing an interview right before um, coming on here, and yeah, it takes a lot. I. I there's a, so much emotional labor going on and that needs to be acknowledged yeah. and that needs to be respected. That is part of the epistemology. And if it's not part of the epistemology, we need to question why it's not. Right. Yeah. Huh. Well, I think that's a good ending. And I want to agree. I want to thank you, Stephanie, so much. And, um, well, and you just said about not accepting compliments, but I'm here. Yeah, so here we go again. I'm going to keep heaping all the compliments onto you. Um, but no, no, no. no. Some, somebody, somebody told us that it was important to be uncomfortable. So I think that we should just keep doing this and see where it leads. Oh, my. That's true. Speechless. So, I'm sitting here speechless and I want to say something. Damn it. So, okay. so thank, thank, thank you for coming on. This has been an exceptional well, experience. Thank, and thank you for the opportunity to be sharing um, my research in this way. Thank you so much. Of course. Well, um, our next uh, interview um, is happening in a few days. Um, so everyone's going to, you know, hopefully they'll absorb everything that you've just laid out, Stephanie. And, um, oh, if it's anyone a lot. wants to it's learn a lot. more about your research, is there a certain place they should go to to um, learn more? Sure. So um, uh, th this, this broadcast, this podcast, oh, my God, I'm so old. This podcast um, <laughs> is one. Um, I want to think about spaces in publications that are not academic because usually journal articles exist behind paywalls and they're ridiculously priced and very hard to access. Yeah. So I do know that I'm going to also be um, a part of a conference coming up on October 22nd and 23rd, the Gender Conference in New York City. Okay. And that is online, that is accessible. So, and, and for us to just, I just want to leave with the idea that we need to have those conversations 
Let's start having those conversations and let's keep um, being present at those conversations. Absolutely. Wonderful. And what I'll do, we're going to link that uh, conference I will send you in the our uh, notes. So that way, anyone who's listening right now can um, attend the conference. Thank you. That yeah. Thank great. you. That would yeah. be great. And then we can just keep the talk, the talk going. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Okay. Well, uh, bye, Stephanie. And um, bye to all the listeners. Uh, you'll hear us next time. And um, yeah. Hope everyone is out there is doing well and is staying uh, safe and healthy.